Well, we're starting a brand new series today where we're going to take over the next four weeks um, an inside look. We're going to kind of unpack and take a look at a word that so often you hear in the realm of God and of religion. It's the word that you find on the screen, faith. And oftentimes when we introduce a series or when we are talking about a series, you'll hear Matt or I say, this is a really important series. It seems like we're super excited, right? I use that phrase about every single series that we do. And actually that is true. We do get excited about these series. But as I, I thought about the impact of this one, I don't think I am exaggerating when I say this particular study and the understanding and growth in what faith is and what faith is not can absolutely change your life. And I want to explain what I mean by that by sharing with you something that happened last week. About a week ago or so, I got news that uh, my uh, high school and college basketball coach and since that time, a Christian mentor in my life had had a very severe stroke. He's only in his 60s or so. And over the last week, uh, the doctors and medical experts at Mayo have been doing everything they can to help him physically get better, to physically help Coach Unky out. But it came really clear that God had different plans and yesterday, God called Coach Unky home to heaven. Now, you can just imagine, and some of you have had to face this in your own life, in your own way, how his wife and his children and his very young grandchildren are now reacting to that news and navigating this, which just you know a week and a half ago they had no idea about. And there have been tears and there will be tears, and there will be hard days. But what has so encouraged me is that I, as I have seen them text and message family and friends as they're navigating this, even before God called him home to heaven, is the strength and the confidence that they have as they're walking through it. Now, don't get me wrong. They're still and will be still trying to grapple with what this means for their life moving forward. I'm not in any way trying to say that this is easy. And for those of you who have been there with a loved one, you know that that's the case as well. It is not easy. But they're walking through it with a confidence and with a strength. And as I thought about that, I couldn't think of a better example of what it can look like to be walking through life by faith, when we walk by faith. Now, as I said, I'm guessing that many of you know of people as you've watched them navigate difficulty or hardship, have felt the same way about them as I felt about the Unkies. And I'm also guessing that if you had your choice, 
You also would like to have that same strength and confidence when or if you are going through difficulty or hardship in your lives. And that's why I think this series is so important and so powerful, because what we're going to try to answer over the next four weeks, at least scratch the surface on it, is this. Where does that type of strength and confidence come from? Where does that type of faith come from? And how do I get more of it? So, If you're someone gathering with us who have never really called yourself a person of faith and wasn't even sure what that means, this series is for you. If you're someone who seems to feel as if you've been wandering in your life and are now trying to regain faith, this series is for you. If you're someone who has a deep desire to strengthen your faith, this series is for you as well. So today, one of the things I want to do is define exactly what faith is and what faith is not. And I think the church and pastors who have stood in front of congregations just like this have at times misled people to think faith is something that it is not. So I want to start there. Some have taught that faith is this, that faith is a tool to get God to do things for us. What I I mean by that is it's like this leash or this lasso that we put around God, and if we believe enough or we have faith about something enough, well, then God is going to do it for us. On the flip side, what sometimes gets taught or you hear, or maybe you've even thought, is the reason why God is not doing something in your life is because you don't have enough faith or you haven't believed enough. You haven't trusted enough. And the unfortunate part about this is, well, has God done everything in your life just the way you've asked him to? I don't think any of us sitting here would claim that to be true. So if faith is this thing that you have to have a lot of, and when you really believe, then God does what you want him to do, that puts you in a pretty precarious place when what you want him to do and what you believe he should do and what you're trying to faith him into doing for you, he doesn't do. In fact, it leads people into a couple different places. When God doesn't do what you want to do, him to do, it either begins to lead you to a place where you're doubting God. Like, okay, God, I really believe. I really have faith. But you're not doing what I'm asking you to do. And so you begin to wonder, okay, maybe either God doesn't care or God isn't there. Or on the flip side, it can lead you to this place where you begin to doubt your faith. And this is probably what happens more often. That you're not sure that you really believe or that you you question the, the depth of your faith or your trust because you're not getting your loved one healed or your, um, you know, that job that you wanted is not happening or heck, you're not getting the date you've been hoping to get, right? And what I've seen 
with this is for some people, when they think of faith as this leash on God, that it actually can lead people to question, well, their relationship with God altogether. I was talking to a good friend of mine from here at church. Um, She has a friend who was diagnosed with terminal cancer a few years ago, Christian woman. She died a Christian woman. Looking forward to seeing her someday in heaven, my my friend is. But as she was going through the the final stages of her life, uh, she was led to believe by some people at the church she attended that the only reason she wasn't being healed was because she didn't believe enough that if she had faith enough, if she believed enough, if she trusted enough, they told her, we know God will heal you. And yet, at least this side of heaven, he didn't. And she still died a Christian, but you know what was taken from her? Some of the peace that God intends us to have. Some of the peace that God wants us to have when it comes to faith and relationship with him. See, you've heard us say this before, but we don't have vending machine God where if you say the right prayers or you have the right faith, you can convince God to do just about anything for you. That's not the type of God we have. We have a God who has an amazing plan from eternity and does in all seasons exactly what's best for his children, whether we can always understand it or see it or not. So what is faith? It's our first fill-in for today. It's a little bit wordy, but at the same time, I think all of the parts are very important. Here's what faith is. Faith biblically is confidence. It's trust. It's rock solid that God is who he says he is, and that he'll do what he has promised to do. And the last part of this definition is one that I want to you know, focus on right now. Notice it's not that he'll do what you want him to do, that he'll do what you hope he will do, that he'll do what you ask him to do. Faith is believing that he'll do what he has promised to do. And this really helps us with a verse of the Bible that is kind of the quintessential definition of faith. And yet a lot of Christians get really confused by exactly what it means. Maybe for you, you've never actually had someone dig into it and explain it to you. And and I hope from this point forward that it's going to make more sense to you. Here's the verse in Hebrews chapter 11 the writer writes, faith is confidence. It's a trust, a confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. So you've got faith, but then you're introduced to this word hope. What's the definition of hope? I'm going to say it in a rhymey type of way. Hope is wanting something to be, but there's no guarantee. That's what hope is. Wanting something to be, but there's no guarantee that it'll happen. Like you hope that your loved one is healed. You hope that you get the raise. It's this time of year again, guys. We hope that the Vikings have a good season and make the Super Bowl. 
no, wait, win the Super Bowl, right? Hope is wanting something to be with no guarantee. But here's the question. How does a hope turn into a confident faith? Is it just like really believing? Well, let me give you an example that corresponds with what the Bible says. So here, use this example. Let's say you had been hoping to get a raise at work. And you've been working hard. You've been coming in early. You've been hoping to get a raise. Then one day your boss comes into your office and says, hey, I've noticed that you've been working hard. Next pay cycle, we want to give you a raise. And you go home that evening to your wife or to your husband, and you know what you don't say? You don't say, hey, honey, I hope I'm getting a raise. You say, I'm getting a raise, honey. Let's go somewhere really nice, like Farmington Steakhouse or something, right? (laughs) How did faith, hope turn into faith? You know what the answer is? A promise. There was a promise given by the boss that took your, what you hoped for and turned it into something confident. Think about you know, wanting to go out with a pretty girl or a handsome guy, and you hope they go out with you. And then you get a text that it says, hey, yes, I want to go on a date with you too. What time should we meet? Your hope has now turned into a confidence because of what? Because of a promise. That's what faith is. That's what that Hebrews 11 passage is saying. Let's go back to that definition. Faith is confidence that God is who he says he is and that he'll do what he promised to do. Next week, we're going to dig into deeper. You know, how does faith come to us? How does faith grow? All the inner workings of that. But for today, what I I want to acknowledge is that if you're going to believe someone's promises, that this needs to be true, that a wise faith will focus on a trustworthy object. Have have you ever put your, your, your trust into the promises of some politicians? trustworthy or not, I'll let that for you to decide. But when we put our hope and when we trust the promises of people who don't keep their promises or who lie, that's not a strong or wise faith. What that is, is a little bit of being naive, right? But here's the thing with God or the span of history. He's never broken a promise. He's never lied. And you know what the rest of Hebrews chapter 11 does? It then goes on to show and describe through the Old Testament pages of all of these people who were promised something by God, and then God came through on it, and they were considered to be heroes of faith, not because they believed that God would do what they wanted him to do, but they believed that God would do what he promised he would do for them. So that's what faith is. It's having confidence that God is who he says he is and that he'll do what he's promised to do. With the rest of the time we have today, what I I wanted to do is to really hone in and focus in on what I would say is the greatest blessing that comes through faith. The greatest blessing that allows us to then also walk with confidence throughout life. And to do that, 
we're going to, instead of me just telling you how that works, I'm going to show you. We're going to jump in like right into the middle of a very serious moment in the history of the New Testament. We're going to jump right into a moment where Jesus is hanging on a cross with two other criminals on either side of him. Luke chapter 23, it starts this way. Uh, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. So I know we're just kind of like jumping right in here, but let me back up for a moment and just remind you, when it comes to why Jesus was being crucified, on surface level, from what people could see, here was the reason. That the Jewish leaders hated him. They felt threatened by him. They were jealous of him. They were afraid of him. And the Jewish leaders convinced the Jewish people to call for Jesus to be crucified. And the Jewish people called on Pontius Pilate to carry that through. And that's exactly what Pontius Pilate did. Now that's on the surface. Below the surface, here's the real reason Jesus, a perfect person who did nothing wrong, was crucified because that's exactly why he came to earth. And when it comes to your faith in God's goodness and your faith in God's love, I just need you to know, I need you to hear again that Jesus never promised or never came so as to say, hey, I came to give you a happy life every day. Jesus did not come to make people who follow him rich or powerful or influential. The disciples initially hoped that would be the case, but they quickly found out it wasn't the case. Jesus didn't come to make you famous. He came through his blood to make you holy and to give you a relationship with God. Here's what John, one of the disciples, wrote about Jesus. That is the blood of Jesus, his son, that purifies us from all sin. Jesus, although he had done nothing wrong, not even a thought, he was totally blameless and totally holy. He came to earth to suffer in our place, to be our substitute so you and I would not have to suffer the cross. More than that, we would not need to suffer hell. That's why we have a cross hanging in this room. That's why people who follow Jesus appropriately wear necklaces with crosses on them or shirts with a cross on it or even have crosses tattooed on their bodies because it is at the cross that everything has changed for us. Jesus was the substitute that we needed, the perfect sacrifice in our place. Number two, Jesus suffered hell so you wouldn't have to. That's why Jesus was there. What about the other two guys? Honestly, we don't know a lot about them. We don't know their names. We don't know where they're from. We don't know what they did. But we know it was worse than, you know, stealing a glazer from Quick Trip. Rome didn't just crucify anybody. In fact, if there was any way of rehabilitating someone... They wouldn't crucify you. They would put you into slave labor. You know, why waste a life that could help out um, for the government? So 
these were guys that had a past, we don't know exactly what it was, but did some very horrible, probably violent things. And when, when you think of Jesus, and then you, you think of these two criminals, and, and you consider yourself, um, who do you relate to the most? Some of you probably are like, none of them. <laughs> I've never been on death row. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed any violent crimes. And yet, and yet here's what James writes about us. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And I know this is a little bit sobering. This isn't the, the part that we're going to have a, you know, cheers or an amen over or anything like that, but it is the truth of our story that God doesn't grade on a curve and you know, 99% is not good enough. That because God is holy, he requires me in thought, word, and deed to be holy as well. And if I mess up, if I sin just in one way, it's well, as if I'm guilty of breaking all of it, that I can and should be able to relate to the criminals on the cross because I deserve that fate on my own as well. And that's your story too. Verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified Jesus there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, blows me away, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They mocked him, made fun of him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. And think about self-restraint. Jesus in that moment could have saved himself. He could have come off the cross, but he didn't. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him again to mock him, which read, this is the king of the Jews. Ironically, that's exactly what he, he was, but they put it above him in a mockery type of way. I'm not only blown away by the amount of ridicule that Jesus went through during you know, that entire 24 hours, but even more so what amazes me is his grace and his love and his forgiveness for the people who are killing him and for you and for me, the reason why he stayed on that cross. Then something else strange happened. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And here's why I think it's strange, because remember, the way people typically died on a cross was they got so tired that they eventually weren't able to catch a breath and they'd suffocate. This was a very energy-sapping thing, okay, being crucified. And this criminal decides to use some of the energy he has not to curse out the soldiers who are putting spikes through his hands and his feet, but to curse out this Jesus who's hanging next to him. Why? And I don't think it's that hard 
to really relate or understand why his anger was towards Jesus. It's a man nearing the end of his life, grappling with his own mortality. It's something happens in your life that makes you think about the end of the world or think about the end of your life. What do you also think about? You think about God and what comes after this life. That's, of course, what this criminal was thinking about is he's only hours away from death. And so he's throwing verbal daggers at Jesus. Verse 40. And yet the other criminal rebuked him. So the criminal on the other side starts rebuking or even cursing out the criminal who is cursing Jesus. Verse 40 continues. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We're punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. It's interesting, Matthew in his account, records that at the beginning of the the crucifixion day, both people, both criminals, had been cursing Jesus out. So what happened? What changed? We don't know exactly all the details of what was going through his mind and his heart, but here's some logical things that probably happened. The area wasn't big, meaning where they were from. Jesus was very popular, it is very likely that both of these criminals had heard about Jesus long before they hung on a cross next to him. They had heard what people had said about him. They heard about what he claimed. And then over the the hours that they were hanging on the cross next to each other, this one criminal taking everything in, recognizing what a sham of a trial it was and that Jesus had done nothing wrong to deserve crucifixion. And then he says, Father, forgive them. All these things coming together. And he begins to believe that maybe Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. Verse 42, he says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Strange, strange request. Do you know who you ask to remember you? You ask your, your college student, your teenager, as they go off to college, please remember me. You, you, you ask the guy who has Viking season tickets to remember you. Do you know who you don't ask to remember you? Someone who's about to imminently, in the next few moments, die. You don't ask someone who's going to die to remember you unless, unless you believe that his death is not going to be the end. And this criminal, do you know what he came to? He came to have faith, a confidence that Jesus is who he says he is and that he'll do what he promised he would do. My friends, this is the most important gift of faith. Here's how John writes it in probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes 
puts their trust in him, has faith, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Number three, saving faith. Saving faith is trust that Jesus is our savior from sin. You know, that criminal, it's interesting, he, he didn't have time, the one who came to faith, to explore all the nuances of creation versus evolution. He didn't have a chance to really debate in his mind and his heart, you know, how does the free will of people work with uh, God's plan from eternity? How do you make sense of that or that God is three persons in one or exactly what's going to happen at the end of the world? You know, all these questions that we have as, as Christians... He didn't have time to explore any of those things. He only came to know that Jesus is who he said he was. And guess what Jesus told him? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Do you know why that criminal was saved and why Jesus not only said this, but brought him into heaven that very same day? It's our theme for today. It's simply because faith in Jesus Christ saves. He's done it all. You don't have to do a thing. Next week, we're going to be reminded that even faith itself is a gift that he gives to us through his Holy Spirit. And when it has nothing to do with you and has everything to do with him, there is a confidence we get to live with. As we close, I, I want to give you a picture of what this can look like. So some of you might know this, but I, I grew up first 10 years of my life in El Paso, Texas. And we would get snow uh, here or there. It would always, you know, melt by noon. They'd still cancel, you know, school for the day. The snow would be gone. But the one thing as a 10-year-old I had no concept of were ponds or lakes freezing over. Like, just could not mentally compute that. And here's why I know that. Because when we then moved to the Midwest... One of the first youth group outings that were scheduled was a ice skating party at a nearby pond, uh, a very little lake. I'd call it a pond. And I was uncomfortable that entire youth group gathering. Here's why. My 10-year-old mind could not compute how in all the world it could be safe to be skating on top of water. And any moment I was thinking, 10-year-old brain, like, this ice could crack and I'm going in. And so for that entire day, that entire evening, I guess, I didn't enjoy myself. I was nervous the entire time, filled with anxiety. That's what it looks like when we don't live by faith. There's more anxiety, there's more worry. But on the flip side, number four, when you walk by faith, you can walk with confidence.
there are so many other promises that we can anchor our lives to as we walk by faith. We're going to explore those in week four. But for today, let me remind you of the best one. When someday you get word that someone you love is going to be not going to make it or had a stroke or has terminal cancer, or maybe someday it's you. And it will be someday, unless Christ returns first. What amazing confidence we can have to know that the worst thing that can happen to this to us is just a window, a doorway, into the best blessing God ever could give us. And when the worst thing God has promised to turn into the best thing, why would we not walk with confidence in all circumstances, in all situations? And we're not going to get this perfect, but that's what it looks like. That's what it feels like. You have a Savior who conquered death, and we get to walk by faith. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the the blessing of your son. You have not left it up to us to earn our forgiveness. There's no way we could do it anyway, Lord. But instead, in your love, you had a plan all the way from the Garden of Eden for your son Jesus and his blood to purify us from all sin. Lord, there's a lot of things that can cause us anxiety and worry. Many of us don't feel as if we're walking very confidently right now. I pray that you would give each of us strength of faith, recognizing that even the worst that sin and the world can throw at us, you have taken care of. And it's just a doorway into the best gift you've ever purchased for us. To that end, Lord, I pray that through you and your Holy Spirit, that we have a gathering of believers who every day walk more confidently as we walk by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.